Mark chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. And he entered the synagogue again, and a man was there who had a withered hand. So they watched him closely, whether he would heal on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man who had the withered hand, step forward. Then he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they kept silent. And when he had looked around at them with anger, being grieved by the hardness of their hearts, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored as whole as the other. Then the Pharisees went out and immediately plotted with the Herodians against him how they might destroy him. But Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great multitude from Galilee followed him, and from Judea, and Jerusalem, and Idumea, and beyond the Jordan, and those from Tyre and Sidon, a great multitude, when they heard how many things he was doing, came to him. So he told his disciples that a, uh, a small boat should be kept ready for him because of the multitude, lest they should crush him. For he healed many, so that as many as had afflictions passed about him to touch him. And the unclean spirits, whenever they saw him, fell down before him and cried out, saying, You are the Son of God. But he sternly warned them that they should not make him known. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those he himself wanted, and they came to him. Then he appointed twelve, that they might be with him, and that he might send them out to preach, and have power to heal sicknesses, and to cast out demons. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, and the, and the, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanagras, which is sons of thunder, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, son James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him, and they went into a house. Then the multitude came together again so that they could not so much as eat bread. But when his own people heard about this, they went out to lay hold of him, for they said, He is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem said, He has Beelzebub, and by the ruler of the demons he casts out demons. So he called them to himself and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but has an, but has an end. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house. Assuredly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the sons of men and whatever blasphemes they may utter. But he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is subject to eternal condemnation, because they said he has an unclean spirit. Then his brothers and his mother came, and standing outside they said to him, calling him. And a multitude was sit sitting around him, and they said to him, Look, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. But he answered them, saying, Who is my mother or my brothers? And he looked around in a circle at those who sat about him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God is my mother and my sister and mother. Let's pray together. Lord, we just recognize the sovereign timing of where you have us studying in light of all that you're doing in our church right now and what's happened already this morning. We thank you that you do all things well. We pray that you'd use these verses for your purposes in our lives we yield our hearts to you. We're not interested in just learning information. We want to commune with you through your word, and we want to not just be hearers only, but doers. Help us to listen and to learn, not based on what we know or don't know, or what we agree or don't agree with, Lord, but what we're obeying. We thank you for your word and its effect in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Last week, we saw him deal with their attacks related to uh, the Sabbath, and he's going to continue to deal with them, and they're going to continue to uh, plot against him and so forth, and we're going to see that Jesus continues to do what only he can do despite the attacks, despite the opposition, so much in this chapter. I want to get right to verse 1. And he entered the synagogue again, and a man was there who had a withered hand. So he entered the synagogue again. We saw last week that he entered the synagogue 
And so his focus here, now why does he go into synagogues? He goes into synagogues because his ministry was to the Jews. We saw in Matthew that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. Matthew was tasked with trying to reach the Jews with his great record-keeping skills that he had by being a tax collector and to record the teachings of Jesus. Mark, as we've seen, is dealing with the acts or the, or the works of Jesus, focusing on him being a suffering servant. But his mission is to go to the Jews, not that he wouldn't reach any Gentiles, but his main focus is the Jews. And then he would task the disciples with reaching the Gentiles, much to their surprise, as you see in the book of Acts. Now we're told also there's a man there with a withered hand. This is hand atrophy. There's all different names for it. It's the, it's the muscles deteriorating, the nerves affecting it. He could not open up his hand. Sometimes you see that from different uh, conditions that people have. Uh, so we don't know the cause of it. Oftentimes it's the whole arm, but that he doesn't focus on the arm. He doesn't reveal that the arm is affected. He's just talking about his hand here. But really what's happening here is on display is need versus compassion that Jesus is going to show and compassion versus hard hearts life versus religious tradition we're going to see knowing your messiah versus not knowing your messiah not recognizing him and so it's but it's not just that he's not just exposing the hardness of the religious leaders hearts he's also remember he does many things at once all at the same time he's so good at that and what one of the things he's doing is he's ministering to this man and it could be missed if you don't look closely, but everything Jesus says, everything Jesus does is for a reason. There's not one jot or tittle or part of the Word of God or the smallest part of the Word of God that isn't important, and we need to look at it, and that's why we go through it the way that we do. So let's see. He says in verse 2, so they watched him closely, that's the religious leaders, whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man who had the withered hand, step forward. Then he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to, do, to save life or to kill? But they kept silent. Now this is what the tradition was at that time related to the Sabbath. In their traditions, not in the Word of God, but in their traditions, you could help someone on the Sabbath it was, if it was life-threatening. But that's it. And, and I believe, of course, how God arranged all of this and, and this man that had the need in the room, um, it wasn't life-threatening. And so it's not by accident that all of this happens. It's not life-threatening. But Jesus is wanting to do good beyond just what's life-threatening, obviously. And, and he wants us to follow what his word says, not traditions. They quoted traditions. They quoted man's opinion of God's word. They didn't quote the Bible directly, usually, in that day. They quoted uh, the, the traditions of man versus God's word. So that was the standard. So he watched, they watched him closely. Now this reveals something. This reveals how well they knew Jesus. Why would they be watching him? Because they knew him. In the short time that they've had exposure to him, they know something about Jesus that perhaps we don't know or forget as believers that he is going to do good when he comes in contact with people that need good occurring in their lives. He loves people. He cares about every need. He notices every need in, in any room that any people were where they gather. He knows the greatest need in the room by his estimation of what, what that is. And, and he loves people and he wants to do good. And we can forget that Jesus wants to do good in impossible situations. He has compassion for us. He wants to heal us. He wants to transform us he wants to deliver us he wants to forgive us and all those things so they they knew that an impossible action in the presence of a possible situation that had to do with people equals as far as jesus was concerned the temptation and then from their perspective to do good and to heal and so they watched him very closely and notice jesus tells the man to step forward this is a test for this man he didn't have to step forward. Why would this rabbi want me to step forward? I'm, you know, it's likely, because in that culture, and some, unfortunately many times in, in our culture, people blame sickness on sin. And, and there is an effect that sin has on sickness at times, 
But most sickness has nothing to do with sin. And that culture, though, if you had something going on in your physical body, it was a sign that there was maybe some sin in your life. Unfortunately, there's church circles where they still believe that. So he asked them to step forward, and he, and he does. And so, remember, this, God's working in the life of this man, and he's working in the, the lives of these religious leaders at the same time, in addition to working in the lives of the disciples who are watching all of this, are like, what's going to happen? I don't know. Have you seen this before? No, I don't know. What's, what's he going to say? That's what I'd be saying. I'd be saying, what do you think he's going to say? I mean, it's going to be brilliant. It's going to be... And, you know, and, and they're, wow, these, these Pharisees are just confused, you know, or whatever it is they, whatever it is they said. So these, he, but he's wanting also these, these guy, this guy to stand forward, to come forward because he wants to use them as an object lesson to expose their hearts. And notice he says, is it lawful? He doesn't ask, is, what does tradition say? He's talking about God's word. The standard is God's word. There's a lot of things, that, their traditions, that he purposely broke to tweak them to show them that your traditions make the word of God of no effect. And the standard is God's word. We always have to ask, is it lawful? Is it in scripture? Is it something, you know, I, I, so, as I've said before, sometimes I irritate people when they're saying all this stuff and it sounds really good. <laughs> you know, when I say, um, got a verse for that? What do you mean I got a verse for that? You know, I don't need a verse for that. Yeah, yeah, you pretty much do. If you're putting that binding on the rest of the body of Christ, you better have a verse for that. You better know exactly what you're saying and, and so forth. And none of us have the corner on, on the, the truth exactly at any given moment, but we're growing, right? So he's trying to expose their hearts, and he says, is it lawful to do good or evil on the Sabbath? And he's already told them he's the Lord of the Sabbath already. He's speaking from authority here. He is the Lord of the Sabbath. And, and his lesson that we saw last time was God wants to do good on the Sabbath for man. That, that Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So we can get things turned around and think that whatever God lays out for us to do, we've been created to do that thing for the sake of that thing instead of it was an expression of God's heart for us and to benefit us. And that's why he wants us to be obedient. So it's, it's really revealing. Now verse 5 says, And when he had looked around at them with anger, being grieved by the hardness of their hearts, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And notice he says he had looked around. So you picture the room, synagogue. He's looking around at all the religious leaders at their responses to this. And the fact that they had this hard heart, um, it grieved him. And, and it made him angry. Oh, we don't like to see Jesus angry. Like, no, 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 no. Jesus can't be angry. He's meek and mild, and, you know, he's all love. That's all he is. Jesus never gets angry. Yeah, tell those money changers that. Twice he came and cleared out those money, turned tables over, and he wasn't, I don't want to offend anybody, but, you know, could you please move these tables out of here and not rip people off and, and, and stumble the, the, the Gentiles that, and, and the Jews? And No, he cleared those things out twice in his public ministry, and it's it's, it's really easy for us to misunderstand what angers him. You know, he didn't get upset with sinners that, that were knowing and aware of their need, ever. What, what, what angered him was people having hard hearts toward people, pride, and misleading people like the religious leaders. And so anytime we see Jesus angry, it's because the effects of hard hearts toward people have a very, very powerful effect, negative effect on people that he loves. Imagine one of your, if you have children, you have one sibling that is seeing another of your kids, another one of your kids suffer and hurt and all of that, and the, the other child has a complete hard heart towards that, that legitimate need. It just would make you angry. Make, just how can you have that heart towards your brother? You know, he almost set himself on fire trying to set this field on fire. And, you know, I mean, I, yes, there's fault to be assigned here, but, um, you know, he almost died or whatever it is. It's probably a bad example. I'm not speaking from my childhood, by the way. That's it. I never lit anything on fire. I did other things, but didn't light anything on fire. But, but some people have a sinking feeling and this way, way deep inside kind of sense that God's posture towards them is that he's always angry with them. He's just tolerating you. And he really doesn't love you in the sense that he 
desires you or likes you. He just, because he is love and he's obligated to, you know, to do that, he's, you know, and that's not the case. He's not angry at you. You're his child. You're his son or daughter if, if you know him. So it's, it's completely different for somebody that is not stumbling people, that's, that's not hurting other people, that doesn't have pride. Now we get to the man here because he tells him to do this and you would expect the answer and the response to be what? I can't. Aren't you expecting that in the passage? I mean, when you first read it, you are. I'm expecting him to say, I can't, Lord, I can't. But he doesn't do that. And, and it may appear on the surface as a cruel command. Can you imagine the response? Not just the religious leaders, but the disciples for that moment. Man, how could he tell them to do that? I don't know how much time there was between the time that he told them to do it and he did it. But that, that would seem cruel, but it's been said that God's commands are God's enablements. Don't forget that. I remind myself all the time. His whole word is impossible to do in so many ways. We hear him say, go preach the gospel to that person that you don't know. I can't. Go visit that person in the hospital that you barely know. And you maybe have some issues with them because they, they're at your work and they've said things about you or whatever. I can't. You know, stop, stop focusing on where you're at and what you're struggling with and focus on me and how big I am and who your identity is and who I say you are in, in, in the word of God. I can't. See, it, it, when you start to obey what he says to do, we forget that he's not calling us to do something on our own. He doesn't do that because what he calls us to do is supernatural. He knows we're not supernatural. So when he tells us to do something, and usually what he tells us to do that we say we, we can't, we respond we can't, is much, much easier in scope than what this man was dealing with because he tells him to do it. Again, he's testing this man to step forward, and now I want you to stretch out your hand. Do so. I mean, how many times has this man probably tried to stretch out his hand? How many times has he been there going, come on, come on, come on, trying to do it, trying to do it. I'm, I know they didn't have physical therapy like they have today. It doesn't matter if they did. That is an impossible situation. And he honored God and said, I'm going to do the thing you told me to do. I'm not going to try to understand how you're going to do it, but if you're telling me to do it, I'm going to do it. And you're going to take care of everything. You know, faith is not some wishful thinking and you know, I'm going to just do this thing and hope God backs me up or anything. Faith is hearing God speak and then responding with acts of obedience, not understanding how he's going to do it. That's what you see in Scripture, all through the Scriptures. He tells people that know they're not qualified, go do this impossible thing. You're talking to me? Yeah. It's impossible, God. I know it's impossible, but who are you talking to? You're talking to me. Go do that. And then they started to go stepping out to do it, and God came. You know, it's interesting that the first time Moses spoke, I mean, he, and he put out his staff or whatever, but when the, Joshua was led to go across the Jordan, it was the priests had to go and go before him and start stepping in the water. So he stretches us. He, he puts us in situations. We see his faithfulness, but he's always going further, stretching our faith, stretching our faith, stretch. It's all faith land to us. It's all beyond our capacity to, to deal with at the moment. But as we see his faithfulness with the lesser thing, then he stretches us to have our faith in the, in the greater thing and greater and greater and greater. You want to know how God uses people. He uses people by them responding to what he tells them to do when they don't understand how it's going to happen. And they go out and see God provide as they go out and do it, not before. And he's merciful, but that's how he works. And that's what he tells this this guy to do is stretch out your hand. We can be way more disabled than this man spiritually and, or at the least the same extent and God can come in and say, I want you to go do this and we have to obey him what he says. Go plant a church in the Great Recession at the beginning of the summer slump where everyone's on vacation. Go do that. Okay. <laughs> if you don't show up, if it doesn't happen, I didn't say what if. I said go do it. And watch what I do. But I had to go out. The team had to go out and obey what he said. Whether it flops or not, that's on him. He told me to do it. But my, my goal as expressing worship to him and the desire to bless his heart is to thank him in advance 
and to thank him through the process and give him glory through the entire thing, acknowledging that he is able and I'm not able. And that's what blesses his heart is that trust. He continues, and he stretched it out and his hand was restored as whole as the other. That's the word I want to focus on for a second, the word whole. Because as disciples, he wants us to be whole. He wants people to be whole. Mind, emotion, spirit, a whole thing, the whole thing. We're supposed to glorify God in our bodies. Our bodies? Yeah, our bodies. Glorify God with our bodies. He's still working on me with that, you know? But we're supposed to glorify God in every way, and he wants us whole. And so he wants us to be whole disciples. He wants us to be whole in every way. Verse 6, Then the Pharisees came out and immediately plotted with the Herodians against him how they might destroy him. So they, they rarely ever, they hated the Herodians, they hated each other, they united, they had a common enemy and so forth. But Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great multitude from Galilee followed him and from Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and beyond the Jordan and those from Tyre and Sidon. That's outside of Jerusalem, that's outside of Israel right there, Tyre and Sidon. A great multitude, when they, ha- when they heard how many things he was doing, came to him. So he withdrew there in verse 7. Jesus withdrew. Do you ever think that withdrawing is spiritual? Do you ever think withdrawing is, is bold, is faith-based? It can be for sure. Jesus knew when to withdraw. It's not a, it's not a sign of defeat. The church is going forward, but sometimes when you, the way the church goes forward is by going backwards in a sense of moving around something that is not been laid out for them to deal with, not laid out for us to deal with at the moment, to not come up again. You know, right now, all these protests, and we have freedom to protest, and all this, the, but these, show, these demonstrations of strength, and you rise up, and I'm going to rise up higher, and all those things, that is not the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is not, um, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. You know, 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3 through 6. But they're mighty in God for the pulling down of strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. So we are called to take everything that happens in our sphere of influence, whether it's our own thoughts, what people do to us, we're supposed to take those things captive and analyze those things based on God's word and then obey what the Holy Spirit says as a result. And sometimes what he leads us to do is withdraw. He's not, gonna, he's not in a war right now with the Pharisees. See, they're in a war with him. But he's not in a war with them at all. He's still trying to reach the Pharisees. He's still trying to uh, expose their sinful, hardened heart so that they can see, wow, I can't believe how sick my heart is and repent right then. And we, who knows, there may have been some that did. At some point, you have Joseph of Arimathea, Nick at night, Nicodemus, you know, that were probably part of the Sanhedrin. They were Pharisees. They were followers of Jesus before all of he died and all those things. So that he had disciples, and, and you know, they, they followed him, even though they may have not done so as much outwardly as of yet. But there was a time for him to not engage them. And there's times where God's called us to stand our ground, to not be moved by what's happening, because he is greater, he who is in us is greater than he is in the world. And we're in the middle of the situation. He tells us to stay there, speak the truth in love. But there's also a time that his Holy Spirit says, depart now and go over here. And he talked about that. We're going to see that in, in, uh, in the coming weeks and months where he'll say, you know, go into a, when you go into a house, let your peace rest there, remain there. If they don't receive what you have to say, brush the dust off your feet and move on. He doesn't just say, stay forever and, you know, <laughs> Stand your ground at all, at all costs. Go to war with Pete. doesn't do all that because there's people that are waiting that are ready to hear, to, are ready to receive what we have to say. The problem is not the harvest field. It's the lack of workers. So when we come into some, uh, one of the few exceptions where the, the, they're not ripened to harvest and they're not ready at this point, we move on to someone that is because there's too much to harvest. There's too much fruit that he wants harvested right away. So we're going to see over 10 times that he withdraws. And we'll, we'll highlight that as we go through it. Verse 9. So he told his disciples that a small boat should be kept ready for him because of the multitude, lest they should crush him. For he healed many, so that as many as had afflictions pressed about him to touch him. And the unclean spirits 
whenever they saw him, fell down before him and cried out, saying, You are the Son of God. They knew exactly who he was, but Jesus didn't need any marketing, didn't need any help with marketing, didn't need any help from the enemy. This wasn't worship. This was probably adversarial. And in there, like, like I'm going to confront you. You are the Son of God. I'm confronting you. I mean, we don't know their motivation, but he doesn't. He just says in verse 12, but he sternly warned them that they should not make him known. Verse 13. And, when, and he went up on the mountain and called to him those he himself wanted, and they came to him. Now this really hits me because he demonstrates a lot about himself by who he chooses. And that we, we look at that and go, that's not a good thing because we know who we are. And, and you know, maybe it's showing that you know, he, he makes bad decisions sometimes because we know who we are. But he knows exactly who he's choosing. He's already called fishermen. He's already called some of the disciples already. This isn't, you know, the, the, the first time. This is, this is at least two years after his first, even in this chapter, remember, it's shrunk down. This is like two years after he first started his public ministry. And it doesn't seem that way, but there's a whole year that we haven't even seen yet that's in the book of John that's unique to John. And so he's dealing with them, but what he's trying to do is not just, okay, I'm going to name apostles and disciples and all that. He's doing something um, different than, than that because he's wanting to prepare them to go out. What he's really doing is he's multiplying himself. He's starting because he knows he's localized. He's limited by, he's chosen to limit himself by location. And he's preparing these disciples. He chose 12. There were 12 you know, sons of Jacob, there are 12 tribes of Israel as a result of that. And he's preparing these 12, even Judas, he knows he's going to betray him, but he's still going to be reached out to, he's still going to be loved and so forth. And he says at the end, those he himself wanted and they came to him. So notice that he originated it. You know, he said in John chapter 15, he said, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Then he appointed the twelve, they might be with him, and that he might send them out to preach. So he knows that he has a desire for these disciples, and he wants to call them, and he wants to equip them. This is more about equipping than anything, as we'll see. But notice he says in the middle of verse 14, that they might be with him. You see that? That they might be with him. Disciples are only made by spending time with Jesus. When they accused the disciples and they saw what they said, they knew that they were uneducated men, but they'd been with Jesus. See, that's the key, being with Jesus. A lot of people want the ministry. They want all these things. They want to preach. They want to do all these dramatic things, and, these, and it's great. God wants to send us out to do that, much like the team that we're sending out. But there has to be a time when you're with Jesus. Generally, for preparation, general preparation related to character and walking with him, but on a daily basis, on any given day when he wants to use us, we need to be with him at the beginning of our day or sometime during the day that's set apart just for that time for him to pour into us because ministry is only an overflow of our personal relationship with him. It's been said that our ministries will never rise above our personal devotional life, and I believe that. And I've seen myself limited by it. I've seen others limited by it where they try to go above their personal devotional life in ministry and it can't because they're an over, it's an overflow of their personal relationship with him. All ministry is is letting Jesus continue his work through our lives today on any given moment. So when he wants to do miracles through us, when he wants to save people through us, all of those things, I have to be available. I have to be equipped. And we're going to get to that. In fact, let's look at that. The word appointed there, uh, there in verse 14. That's the Greek word poema. And that means, it doesn't mean that he's giving them titles. He's handing out badges. He's handing out licenses. I love the license to preach. Uh, licenses to preach that you can get in denominations. It's, I don't know if it's a thing they carry or a badge or, you know, I don't know. But you know, I don't need a license from man, and I know that there's confirmation and all of those things being sent. I get all that. But he appointed them, and, and that word literally means to make some, someone into something. 
to, it's, it's a construction word. If you're in the trade, you know all about what this word appointed means. It means that you take something that exists and you work on it and you reform or change it from one, from one uh, state to another for a better purpose. That's the idea. And that's what God does when we're with him. But if we're never with him in the sense of communing with him and spending time with him, letting him pour into us, then that can't happen because it didn't happen before we came to know Christ. It's not going to happen after we come to know Christ unless we're spending time with him. And that's, we do all these shortcuts. We don't have time for all these things, but yet we want to be really fruitful in ministry. Jesus said all of this in John 15. He talked about that ministry is fruit that comes forth and that he wants to produce that fruit. And he said, apart from me, you can do nothing. And there's pruning that happens. You prune things to make them more fruitful. We sometimes receive pruning as God's against me, but God's not against us. He's for us and he wants to use us, but sometimes there's necessary things that needs to hack away. And it means also to lift up, like you lift those, those vines up to free them up, to bear fruit. So he does that for a specific reason. Don't fight against the preparation, the building time where he's building us up. Look at verse, actually hold your place here real quick. Turn over to Ephesians 2. This will all come together for us. Ephesians chapter 2. Look at verse 8 through 10 here. We know verse 8 and 9. We should all have this memorized or working towards it. For For by grace you've been saved, past tense, saved, through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Now look at verse 10, though. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The word workmanship is that word poema. And so we are his building project. That's really what he's saying. We are his poem. We are his, that's where we get our word poem. It's from poema here. We are his work of art, however you want to say it. When you look, build a building and you're in the trades, you usually don't think of the trades as creative, but it really is. They're following an architect's plan. That architect was very creative and has to put the blueprint down, but they still have to express their skills in putting this all together and doing it well. And he is building us according to his blueprint of how we should be related to service. Because notice at the end, of, go back to Mark 3, the end of verse 14 says that he might send them out to preach and he's and add some other things but he first starts with preach god's called everyone us to to be preachers did you know that that you're called to be a preacher i thought only people up here with with uh pulpits that you know you can potentially drive around you know that there's only ones that 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 preach no all of us are called to be preachers he's called all of us to be to be engaged in preaching the gospel to people he wasn't, they weren't just all clergy. We like to use that word, clergy. They were disciples, and we're all disciples there. So when he does this building, he knows exactly what he has in mind. And he gives, he gives these disciples different names. And we're told there that his name was called Peter. He, he changed his name. And then we're told later that he is going to change James and John's name to the Sons of Thunder, and it, I don't believe it's because they're going to say at one point, shall we call fire down from heaven and destroy the Samaritans because they're not allowing us a place to, to come and have, have ministry and all of that. And, and Jesus is saying, you don't even know what spirit you're of. You know, I mean, uh, I don't think it's a negative derogatory thing because Jesus only says things that build us up. And I think he's looking at their potential yielded to the Holy Spirit that God could greatly use them when they were t- directed the right way. And, and, and that's what we see. You know, James, is, James there gets martyred uh, in the book of Acts, his brother. And John stayed all the way to the end, was faithful all the way to the cross, only disciple at the cross, and, and later on, you know, was able to, to die of old age. He's the only one of the disciples where that happened and because he was faithful all the way to the, to the end. But notice, he continues in verse 15, and to have power to heal sicknesses and to cast out demons doesn't matter what 
Bible commentaries say. It doesn't matter what denominations say. Their long-held doctrine about all these things are not for today. There's no biblical basis for these things ending because people are still demon-possessed. We're in an election year. <laughs> you know? Uh, people are still demon-possessed. People still need to have demons exercised, and I don't mean getting on the treadmill. I mean out, get, as, as Dave says, related to what Jesus said to the demons. Go, get out, delivered. I've been a part of an exorcism. Um, no, we're not going to do that. No. Lay it another time. But it happens. You have that authority. Now, there's got to be a manifestation that it's happening. You can't just go around and, you know, this person at work and just start laying hands on them and casting demons out and all that. They'll, you'll know if they're possessed, trust me. And your authority in the name of Jesus that he's given us to use, that authority, it's not a, ma- a mantra or magic words. It's the fact that we are the reality of what that represents. We are the character of Christ. He has given us his Holy Spirit. We do have authority. I want to read to you Luke chapter 10, verse 19. Behold, I give you the authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. We have power over the demonic realm. We have power to heal, to lay hands on people and for God to heal them. We shouldn't think that. It, 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 I know that it, we all want to see more healings. We all want to see more miracles, and we can. And God wants to use, it, use those things in our lives, through our lives. And in this culture is a, has a definite disposition of unbelief and and we know that jesus limited himself in nazareth because of their unbelief i mean it could be a whole countrywide of what we're seeing in this country but miracles still happen because people get saved first of all that's the greatest miracle people still get healed we should pray and ask god to heal people of things and go to him first he uses doctors he uses medication he uses medicine every good and perfect gift is from above jesus said but we still need to ask directly. God doesn't need doctors. He doesn't need medication. But he heals through that many ways, many times. But we need to honor him and ask him to heal directly. And many times, uh, you know, we, we forget that the whole rest of the world doesn't really have health care for the most part. Europe and, and these other places, big countries like China and so forth, the much of the undeveloped world and the third world, they don't have health care at all. And those Christians, it's... This is all they have, and they're not, we're not any better off than they are in the sense that God is more willing to touch them directly as he is us. He's willing to touch everybody directly, no matter where they live. So he goes to the apostles' names here in verse 16. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James the son of Zebedee, and John the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, whatever it is, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew, Philip, you try to say it, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him, and they went into a house. Then the multitude came together again, so that they could not so much as eat bread. It must have been pretty serious, because disciples, there's really not much that gets in the way of them eating bread and eating, right? But there were such the crowds and all, everything and so forth. But when his own people heard about this, they went out to lay hold of him, for they said, he is out of his mind. Notice in verse 21, it says, his own people. That's likely his family, close friends, people that were from Nazareth there, and, he, and they, they want to lay hold of him. Like, this is getting out of control. Have you ever heard it? Have your family say, hey, you're kind of going crazy. This is kind of weird. You actually believe that book as if it's true. <laughs> you know, like, it's, you can't say that it's more than, than literature, can you? Do you really believe this stuff? You really believe? Yeah. I really, just like we heard the testimony today. It's true. He changes people. He, he, he takes lives and makes them what he wants them, wants them to be, and they don't understand it. And they'll tell you, you're crazy. How many of us have recently heard that someone in our family refer, or hear that they refer to us as being crazy? Yeah, there's some hands going up. Think that we're out of our mind. And they went to lay hold of him. I mean, that's how, that's how concerned they were about him. They went to lay hold of him. Now, that's not going to happen because he's, you know, they tried to do that in Nazareth and out of the synagogue, run him off a cliff, and he went right through them because his time had not yet come. And then here comes some more accusations here in verse 22. The scribes who came down from Jerusalem, so they traveled to persecute, commute to persecute, that's what Jesse Jackson would probably say, 
uh, you know, he has Beelzebub, and by the ruler of the demons, he cast out demons. Now, Beelzebub means Lord of the Flies. It happens when you leave your house and leave your kids there, you know, unattended. <laughs> you know, that whole book, Lord of the Flies. And it, it, it was a play on words there. Uh, you know, it really was taking the word prince and changing it to saying prince of flies there. And so, uh, you know, they're, they're attacking just vigilantly. And that's the case. So when we step out and when God, we spent time with Jesus, as we looked at, and he starts building us and he starts making this project, this long-term project that he has with each one of us, and he's thrilled to have it. And we start stepping out and obeying what he says to do and going out, preaching the gospel, casting out demons, healing people, whatever it is. The kingdom of God being uh, expanded in this world, we can expect attacks from our family not understanding us. And we can expect tax from religious leaders, potentially, and people that don't have an, a, an idea of what God's word really says. And so there's opposition and false accusations. Have you been falsely accused of something? Jesus knows exactly what you feel like, what it feels like to be falsely accused. He already was falsely accused of being crazy. Now he's being falsely accused of having a demon. So he called them, verse 23, to himself and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? And then he continues, If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but has an end. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house. Assuredly, and that means amen, amen. He's saying amen, amen when he says that. I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the sons of men and whatever blasphemes they may utter, but he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is subject to eternal condemnation. Verse 30, because they said he has an unclean spirit. So he gives this, he's being accused of, he's dealing with spiritual warfare here, an attack. We just went Friday night at, at Dave's house and the, learned about spiritual warfare. It was really great. By the way, great, great thing to go to. Um, it's great just to be able to study God's Word and to worship together. It's a blessing. If you haven't gone to that, I highly recommend it. You're welcome, Dave. And so the, um, you know, the, 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 the spiritual warfare principle here that Jesus is talking about is, notice I didn't, I didn't say anything about Ken. Staying nice, Ken, because of the microphone thing. So, but the divide and conquer principle here. Divide and conquer. That's the, that's the thing that the enemy loves to do. You know, the God adds, sometimes he subtracts. He loves to multiply. That's his favorite thing to do, multiply. But the, 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 the enemy likes to divide. He likes to divide. That's his favorite uh, math there is division, divide and conquer. And so what Jesus is saying here is that he's saying that wouldn't make any sense because the kingdom of darkness is the kingdom of darkness. It's not going to fight against itself. Satan is not going to cast out other demons. And he talks about this parable about the strong man and binding the strong man. And, and this is where a lot of the teaching comes from about binding Satan and all, of the, and all of that, which God never tells us to do. What Jesus is saying is he's saying, I'm more powerful than the kingdom of darkness. And I have to come in, and I love to come in, and I love to bind the strong man. I love to be more powerful than all of this. I'm more powerful. This isn't Satan working. This is me working, and I'm more powerful than the enemy here. And, and, and so I don't have Beelzebub. I don't have a demon. He's not going to fight against himself. I'm not using Satan. I'm more powerful than Satan. So he wouldn't do that. And, and so he's exposing that, but at the same time, he's, he's talking about they're, the risk that they're taking here of committing the blaspheming of the Holy Spirit. Now, there's no time in Scripture where it talks about the words unpardonable sin. We add that in. But the principle is a sin that won't be forgiven. And he's talking about that here in verse 28. And we have to understand as believers that this is not an issue for us. And people that worry, I don't know if I've committed the unpardonable sin and, you know, I'm worried about it. And like, well, first of all, if you'd ever done it, you wouldn't be worried about it. So if you're worried about it, you haven't committed it, number one. But number two is that they were ascribing what Jesus was doing to Satan 
in the presence of Jesus himself. That's a little bit different. Jesus at one point says, they wouldn't be guilty unless I had done the things that I did before them. And so there was a level of guilt here that's far beyond anything I believe that we can do. But ultimately, the, the one sin that can't be forgiven is the rejection of Christ. And, and so if we die in that condition, that's not going to be forgiven. So if you're worried about it, don't worry about it. You haven't committed it, don't worry about it. Uh, and, and he wants us to not be stumbled by it because the enemy loves to throw that stuff at us at times. Verse 31. Then his brothers and his mother came, and standing outside they said to him, calling him. Okay, picture this now. Mary is there with his brothers. In other places we're told that he had other brothers. There's a family of at least seven when you count all his. He had at least one sister, uh, and he had brothers, and I think that he had more than one sister. I can't remember at the moment, but I know, I believe there was a family of at least seven. So they're, they're calling him. Picture this. They're, he's inside the house. He's calling. And I mean, they're calling to him. And, and the multitude was sitting around him. And they said to him, look, your father and your brothers are, are outside seeking you. And, and you would expect, by, based on what's, what people believe and what's out there, and people would, would think that he would just go, oh, boo. and especially in that culture, your family is everything. I'm not going to leave them out there. I'm going to show honor to them. Jesus knew that we need to honor our father and mother. That's, that's obviously commanded. He's never going to disobey that. He wasn't dishonoring them by doing that. He's, but he's, he's emphasizing who his true spiritual family is. And it's almost as if he knew that people would lift his mother and his family up too much. And so he wants to de-emphasize, not disrespect, wrong D, de-emphasize them and focus and emphasize on his true family. And he says in verse 33, who is my mother and my brothers? And he looked around in a circle. Notice it's in a circle. At those who sat about him and said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of my brother, the will of God is my brother and my sister and mother. And sometimes people disobey God's will in order to venerate or lift up or put in too high a pedestal, his mother, who was a great woman, a woman of God. Luke, we're going to see that in Luke. We're going to see how amazing Mary was. And, but someone, they disobey the will of God because they go against God's word in believing tradition instead of testing what those, those traditions are based on what God's word says. And so the application for us is that that's how close he associates himself to us. And he's saying, this is my family here. This is my family. You know, this is your true family way more than our physical families. Our physical families, we hope that they'll be with us in eternity with Jesus, but they may not be. But your family here will be. We love to call each other brother, sister, and that is true. We are brothers and sisters, and he loves to associate with us that closely. And so the emphasis needs to be, I need to do the will of God. Not just hear it, but do it, do obey it. So important for us to listen to any teaching or read the Bible on, on our own for the purpose of obeying more, not just merely learning more information, as great as that is, and as much as we need our mind renewed, and as much as we need to grow in the grace and knowledge of God, we need to be asking, how can I obey this instead of, do I agree with it? You'll agree with things all day long, but I may not be obeying at that particular day or moment. And so we have to recognize God is interested in us fulfilling his will. When we do his will, we prove that we're part of his family. And it's a beautiful thing. He loves, loves to have us be part of his family. We've been adopted. That's why adoption is so beautiful because it, it, it models what has happened to us spiritually between us and God. So the encouragement here, as I close, don't hesitate to obey what God tells you to do when he says, do this, do the impossible. Because with his calling comes his provision. Where he guides, he provides. We want to see the provision all in place and everything lined up and just all just picture perfect, walk by sight, then call it walking by faith and, and, and think that we've done something great. And God says, no, that's not how it works. I tell you to do something, you respond in obedience, not knowing how I'm going to do it, and then my glory is seen and I get the credit and you don't. That's how the kingdom of God has always worked in the Old Testament, New Testament, and, he's, and that's how it works in our lives. Also, we need to spend time with him. 
as to be disciples. If we're going to be used by him, if we're going to grow, we have to spend time with him. When we see him face to face, it needs to be something where I've, see, I've, I've, I've been with you before. You know, he said there are going to be many that come, many that come in my name saying, you know, Lord, Lord. And he says, I, I've, done, you know, I've done all these things. I've done all these miraculous things. I've, I've cast out demons, all this stuff. And he's going to depart from me, you evildoer. I never knew you. It's knowing him. And if you're here today and you don't know Christ, you've been religious, you believe in God, you believe that you're a Christian because you were born in America or whatever it is, those things don't make you a Christian. Listen to me. It's important. You're not a Christian if you just believe in God. You're not just a Christian if you merely agree with the facts of the gospel, but you've never received. In John chapter 1, verse 12, he says, to those that received him, he gave them the right to become children of God. There has to be a receiving and there has to be a repenting. Jesus said, and we saw this in, in Mark chapter 1, repent and believe in the gospel. There has to be repentance, which means, what does that mean? It means to make a U-turn in the road of life, a change in your thinking that results in a change of direction, saying, I'm not going to live the way that you, uh, you know, the way that I've lived. I'm going to walk how you have called me to live. And in that, heart, that heart posture and that attitude properly helps you receive the gift of eternal life. And we'll give you an opportunity uh, with those up front after the service that are going to um, pray with you to begin that relationship. They'll, re- they'll answer your questions. They'll lead you in a prayer if, if that hasn't happened between you and him. Lastly, enjoy your family. Enjoy Jesus being the dad, so to speak. And the, Enjoy your family. This is who God's called you to be around. Invest in them, just like you would any family. Allow them to invest in you. This is not a spectator thing. A real, true, good, healthy families engage one another and are there for each other and help one another out. But if we're never around them, how can we know their needs? How can we be an extension of God in their lives if I'm never around my family? You know, dysfunctional families don't say the truth. They're not transparent. They They don't help one another out, and they work against each other. And again, God's working against division. That's what the enemy wants to do. It, you know, I said that there's this, this principle of divide and conquer. Well, there's the opposite in the kingdom of God. It's called unite and stand. Unite and stand. Instead of divide and conquer, we're called to unite and stand together. And that's where our strength comes from. Because we're the, we're the true family. We're, we're going to be enjoying each other for all eternity. Think about that. Now, we want to have our flesh. We want to have our sinful nature. So you can rejoice in that. You know, man, this person for all eternity. Yeah. They're not going to have their sinful nature. You're good, and you won't have yours. So they'll be good. So let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for amazing, amazing account of you engaging people. We want you to engage people through our lives, Lord. Use these verses by your Holy Spirit. Thank you, Jesus, for saving us, those of us that know you. We pray, Lord, that we would grow as your disciples, that we would walk in faith, we would trust you, and we would go forward with the impossible because you are limitless in our lives, through our lives. And we thank you that you do all things well. In Jesus' name.